Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance and direction upon it. Father, we're thankful that we have Your Word. Your Word informs us of who You are and who we are. It's through Your Word that we come to understand the basic problems that we face as human beings and that Your uh, all-sufficient solution was taken care of by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There He paid the penalty for our sins that... It might not be dependent upon what we do, but upon what he did, and that we can have this salvation simply by believing, trusting, relying upon him and him alone for our eternal salvation. Father, we realize that once we are saved, we're members of your family. We have a new identity. We're new creatures in Christ, and we are to learn to think as you would have us to think, and that only comes through the process of studying your word and letting God the Holy Spirit teach us and and to reform our thinking and change our lives uh, through your word and through his ministry. Now, Father, we pray that as we are here this morning that we might be submissive to your word and that God the Holy Spirit would clearly teach each of us how we can apply the things that we learned this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Prayer is one of the most powerful weapons we have in, our, in the spiritual life. As church-age believers, we have direct access to God because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because he is our high priest, because he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. All of these are profound truths that we know of and that we're aware of through revelation in the New Testament. But one of the greatest examples in all of the Bible of prayer, the Old Testament figure that you use to exemplify the power of prayer is Elijah. We have been studying in 1 Kings 18 about the great conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, the battle, the challenge between Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Baal, the manifestation of the uh, pantheon of the, of the Canaanites and the Phoenicians, and all that was entailed in their uh, pagan rebellion against God. And this whole episode with, with Elijah from the beginning of 1 Kings 17 down through this episode and on into his life beyond this is characterized by prayer, and that is picked up by James in the New Testament. Open your Bibles with me first to 1 Kings chapter 18. You'll keep your place there when we leave. We're going to go to James for a short while, then we'll be back in 1 Kings 18. So we'll just be going between those uh, two passages. 1 Kings 18, we've read of the great conflict, the challenge, and God's victory as he answered Elijah's simple, humble prayer calling upon God in verse 37, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are Yahweh Elohim and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And the fire of God came down immediately from heaven and consumed everything on the altar, everything, the rocks, the stones, the dust, the water, the sacrifice, everything was just vaporized. 
and this incredible demonstration of the reality of God and of his power. Following that, we saw last time why Elijah had the prophets of Baal and the Asherah uh, seized and executed because that was in fulfillment of the, of the Mosaic law in order to keep the people pure and to remove from them the source of evil, the source of uh, paganism within, their, within the what was to be a set-apart, sanctified culture of Israel. In the same way, we saw that you and I are to be removing from our thinking all of that false teaching, those false ideas, the pagan influence of the world around us, and replacing it with God's Word that we may be experientially sanctified. And the more we go through that process, the more we're going to find ourselves to be like Elijah rather than like Obadiah. We studied Obadiah earlier as a immature believer, but one nevertheless who was fully loyal to God, but he was scared to death. You see, we all run into this problem in our culture that we are, the more we orient our thinking to God's Word, the more we run into conflict with everything around us, and the more our belief system is based on the Bible, the more the world around us is going to look at us like we're some kind of uh, wacko religious nuts and that we're completely divorced from reality. And, folks, that's not going to get any better. That's only going to get uh, much, much worse. But the reality is that we have God on our side. God plus one is a majority, and Elijah demonstrate, demonstrated that at Mount Carmel. So following the uh, execution of the prophets, Elijah then addresses Ahab in verse 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. He knows the rain is coming. He knows that God had promised him in the first uh, verse of the chapter to go to Ahab and that, um, that, he would, that God would send rain. And so Elijah is predicting the coming of the rain, the end of the three-and-a-half-year drought that was God's punishment, his judgment on Israel for their apostasy, for their paganism, for what Ahab and Jezebel had done in leading them into the uh, perverse uh, practices of the fertility religions. And so Ahab then, we're told, verse 42, goes up to eat and drink. It's been a long day. He hasn't had anything to eat. It's time for him to uh, refresh himself. That's what Elijah's saying, go up, eat and drink. Uh, things are going to change. And Elijah then departs from Ahab, who's been there as a witness to everything. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. He is assuming a very, an extremely humble posture in prayer. And he is going to begin to pray to God to bring the rain and to end, uh, to end the drought. And it is this prayer, as well as the prayer to begin the rain in chapter 17, verse 1, that is picked up by the New Testament. Now, one of the reasons this is important is that as Christians, we often forget that the Bible is really one complete book. There's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament, there's the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, but they are an integrated consistent whole. You really cannot understand the New Testament without an Old Testament background. And you can't really appreciate what happens um, in the Old Testament until you see its fulfillment in the New Testament. This last week I was talking to someone who is about 10 years older than I am, so you can guess at what that is. And he's been in Bible teaching churches most of his adult life, solid, sound, Bible-teaching churches. Before that, he was in a rather conservative denomination, and so he had some exposure to the Bible there to some degree or another. But for probably 30 to 40 years, he's been in a number of Bible, Bible churches, pastored by graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary, men who taught the Word. Many of them taught the Word in depth. And he, he said to me the other evening, he said, you know, Robbie, I have never read the Old Testament. 
I've just picked up one of these chronological Bibles and am going to read the Old Testament this time for this year for the first time. I didn't say anything. I kept a poker face and didn't bat an eye. But how in the world can somebody be a growing believer and be that ignorant of the Old Testament? Folks, you ought to be reading your Bibles through every year, at least once a year, just to have basic fundamental knowledge of who did what, when, their relations to one another, uh, what transpired in the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, to read through the Psalms and the Proverbs, to see the many magnificent promises and principles that are contained there. I mean, that's just basic biblical Basic biblical literacy. See, one of the challenges facing many pastors today is because people are not reading their Bibles, they're biblically illiterate. That means that if I talk about Mephibosheth or Meher Shalal Hashbaz or someone like that, and you don't know who I'm talking about, then I have to spend uh, an extra amount of time in a morning message going back and educating you on who these people are and why they were significant. The, the more biblically illiterate a congregation becomes, the more a pastor has to stop and run down rabbit trails because he can't simply allude to Elijah or Elisha or Abraham and assume people in the congregation know what's going on. We have become so dumbed down in our Christian education today that the person in the pew is abysmally ignorant. Some of you uh, were here, I believe it was, I, I, guess, I don't know if he did it on a Sunday morning or Tuesday because I was gone, but when Jim Myers was here, back when I had the flu back in, back in uh, June, and he gave, or talked about this little quiz that he gave, and he's given to a number of different churches. How many books are there in the Bible? How many times have you read the Bible through in the last year? Uh, who wrote the four Gospels? You know, who wrote the Gospel of John? You know, people didn't know the answer to these. Pastors didn't know the answer to these things. And this is just one reason that our nation as a whole is in the trouble it's in. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. And if believers who've been sitting in churches and are, and are proud of the fact that they're a Christian and they believe they're a growing Christian can't list the 27 books of the New Testament or the 39 books of the Old Testament, they they uh, don't know when, they don't know that when the pastor mentions Second Hezekiah that he's telling a joke. Then. You know, we're in serious trouble, and that's not getting any better. It just seems to be getting worse. One of the reasons why we're committed in this, in this church with our prep school to have a curriculum designed so that from cradle to graduation from high school, if someone is with us that whole time, they will go th- cycle through the Bible five times. We can't cover everything there is to cover in the Bible, but we hit all of the major events, the major events in the Old Testament that are then uh, used in the New Testament as foundations for doctrine and for challenges, uh, challenge to the spiritual life. We teach a framework, an integrated framework of thinking so that these kids are then prepared to meet the challenges that they will face when they go out into the culture around them. And they start getting those challenges earlier and earlier in life. It's often uh, frustrated me to no end that the irony is that the people who are the age group that most needs the academic information that's in the Bible is the age groups that are least ready to assimilate it. And that are, that's our children, our not just high school kids, but middle school and elementary because again and again and again, teachers will just allude to things. They'll talk about the earth as being five billion years old and they uh, talk about uh, man-made global warming as if these are actual realities. And th- they're, these are not, they're not necessarily teaching them per se, but they just assume them. They just fall out in their conversation. These things are present in the reading exercises, comprehension exams that, that the students are reading, first grade, second grade, third grade. And so they're assimilating all of this paganism through the back door. It's just there. And yet we have to, in prep school, prepare these kids ahead of time. That's part of our 
our philosophy. There's a book out that Ken Ham, who's the director of of uh, Answers in Genesis, wrote along with another man whose name I don't remember, who was a statistician. They had hired a firm that does uh, surveys and statistics, this kind of thing, to uh, interview a thousand twenty-year-olds from twenty to thirty, who had all of whom had once been to church and to interview them as to are they presently going to church, what happened when they left home, why did they quit going to church. There were a lot of different questions. And what they came to understand is that the church has failed and that these kids aren't leaving Christianity when when they hit college. They left intellectually in junior high or high school. And it's not because in some cases they just weren't were taught such a shallow uh, view of Christianity, but in many cases, it's just how it was taught. It wasn't taught as something real that hap- that's as real as if it happened yesterday. They're not taught to think about it in terms of its contrast and conflict with the popular ways of thinking today. And so it doesn't really mean anything to them in terms of day-to-day decision-making and day-to-day thinking. So it just becomes something irrelevant. So as soon as they leave home, they leave their Christianity behind. And so as uh, those who are responsible for teaching kids in the church, we have to prepare them for that. We have to prepare them because every one of us faces a Mount Carmel conflict every day. And it happens between our ears. And we have to decide whether we are going to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're going to truly believe his word, or we are going to follow the false gods and goddesses and idols of the mind that are promoted by our culture. And that is our spiritual warfare, and that's our spiritual conflict. And Paul says in Second Corinthians that we are supposed to take every thought captive for Christ. That means thoughts not just related to morals. That's thoughts not just related to what we restrict to spiritual things, but that's thought related to literature, to drama, to music, to art, to politics, to law, to government. All of these things are part of the thoughts that we have. And so to do that, we have to dig deeply into God's Word and drill down into it in order to pull out of it all the things all the things that we can. And one of the principles that we learn is the importance of being humble before God and spending that time in prayer because it's a battle. It is a struggle. Scripture uses this military terminology again and again, uses a term of wrestling in in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, the great chapter on the armor of God, that, that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers uh, of darkness, that it's a spiritual conflict. And so we have to be armed and prepared. And at the very end of that spiritual warfare uh, passage, there is the final exhortation to pray in all things, that we are to pray for everything, and that is the key element. And this is what James addresses in the epistle of James. Turn over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 is an interesting chapter, and the conclusion is interesting because it's mostly not translated well or understood well. I pointed that out in the past, that there are problems here. A lot of the problems that we have in modern translations have a history they go back in all the decades, centuries in English translation. Sometimes you can trace it back to the translation at the King James Bible. There are sometimes you go back before that and to the earlier English translations, Wycliffe, Tyndale, the Geneva Bible, and it might have had a better translation, but things, a lot of things got influenced by the King James uh, translation. Sometimes the English of that era, the early 1600s, has changed. But nevertheless, because this is a familiar verse or a familiar phrase, it really doesn't get changed in subsequent uh, translations. Now, in the first, uh, when we look at James chapter 5, 13 through uh, 15, it appears that the focus is on physical illness and physical suffering. And we've gone through this recently about Uh, Two weeks ago on Thursday night, I did an in-depth analysis of this passage. So if you're interested in that, I would recommend that you go back and listen to the 
uh, MP3 or the video off of the Internet because I'm not going to go into uh, those details this morning. It's not talking about sickness, as I pointed out, in terms of physical sickness. It's talking about spiritual weakness, weariness that comes in the battle, and we grow tired, we grow weary, struggling to do the right thing. Sometimes we give up. That's the theme of James. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result. That's James 1, 2 through 4. But if you don't endure, if you fade out at the uh, final stretch, if you grow weary, then maturity doesn't happen. Growth doesn't take place. And that's what's being addressed here in the conclusion. The conclusion picks up and, and fills out the uh, ideas, the topics, the doctrines that are introduced in the introduction. So James says, Is anyone among you spiritually weak? Let him call for the elders. Here it should be understood to be the mature ones of the church. And let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil, this is a reference, reference to a cultural practice. It's not a healing thing. It is simply a matter of, of their daily uh, toiletry. Everybody in the ancient world living in a dry climate in the, in the desert would uh, daily uh, apply oils and creams to their bodies just to keep their, their skin uh, moist. And so that's the idea. Jesus talked about the fact that when, when the Pharisees were when the Pharisees were fasting, you know, they made it clear they didn't take a shower, they didn't take a bath, they made everybody recognize just by looking at them that they were suffering for God. And Jesus said, if you're going to fast, then anoint your head with oil and put on clean clothes. In other words, the only one who should know is God. You're not doing this for men, you're doing it, doing it for God. He's talking about the same thing, anoint your head with oil. So the issue there was just the fact that if somebody gets discouraged, depressed, uh, some of you been there, you just really don't care. It's hard for you to get up in the morning and even take a shower. And so the idea here would be to uh, comb your hair, take a shower, uh, go for a walk, uh, get those endorphins going a little bit so that that helps to put you in a better frame of mind. And that's the physical side. And then the spiritual side is the prayer of faith. Verse 15, notice prayers mentioned in verse 13, prayers mentioned in 14, prayers mentioned in 15, that the prayer of faith will lift up or deliver the one who is, is weary. Um, let me see, that's in James 5.15. So in James 5.15, you have the prayer of faith will deliver the one who's weary. The Lord will lift him up. And the last half of 15, the first part of 16, focuses on uh, dealing with sin and the importance of confession and forgiveness. And then 16b comes back to a universal principle. So verse 15 gives a promise. The prayer of faith will lift up or will deliver the weary. There's no condition there at all. It is a universal, absolute promise. And then in the last part of 16, we have a universal principle that the effective, it's translated in the King James Version, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, that is a great principle, but unfortunately, it is not translated, uh, it's not translated very well, and it gets a little bit a little bit confusing. It's a tough passage in the Greek, and there are two basic exegetical problems. I don't want to bore you too much with the details here, but you'll see some different translations, and I went through a bunch of different English translations this morning, and they're about evenly split. And the problem is you have two words that are used as about five words or six words in the Greek sentence, and you have this word palu, it's the first word in the sentence, which seems to be the emphasis, and it should be translated much or greatly or very. And the, the, the form that it's in, uh, P-O-L-U, can be either the adjective form of the word or the adverb form of the word. This is where that sixth grade grammar really comes to play. And if you didn't do well in sixth grade, you're going to get lost here. An adverb modifies the verb, and an adjective modifies a noun. Now, so is this talking about um, 
And when it talks about prayer here, the effective fervent prayer avails much or, or accomplishes much. That word there is to be strong. Is it talking about being very strong? That would be the uh, adverb. Prayer is very powerful or very strong. That's how it's translated in the uh, NET Bible, uh, Webster translation, and the New Engl- English Study uh, English Study Version. Or I think it's the I forget what the S stands for. The uh, English Standard Version. That's what it is. That's just recently come out. If it's translated as an adjective then it's modifying a noun. The noun, the head noun, the subject here is prayer, so it would be uh, talking about uh, prayer being uh, very, very strong, uh, very effective. And so uh, some translations to go one way, some go another way, and these are men who know, uh, a lot of them know Greek uh, as well, or if not better than I do. And over the centuries, there's been these discussions as to which way it goes. So that's the first thing you have to decide. The second thing that you have to decide is there's a participle at the end with the verb energeo translated, you know, what what do you think that means? Energy, cognate, work, to accomplish much, to um, if something's powerful. All, All these different ideas are there. Well, it could be an adjectival participle or an adverbial participle. Once again, you've got to deal with that nasty little grammar. And that means it's either going to modify a verb or it's going to modify a noun. If it's adverbial, then it would be understood to be um, the prayer is strong while it is working, as it is working, uh, when it works. I read one grammar, wanted to ide- the, the uh, writer wanted to identify this as causal. I wasn't sure how you would really translate that because it works. Um, then if it's translated adjectivally, then it would modify prayer. That's where we get the usual translation of effectual prayer, where it modifies prayer. But effectual to me has always been very confusing in this passage, but that's how it's understood. The effective, fervent prayer. Fervent comes from the inner ghetto, so that's how the New King James translated it as an adjective and brought it up there at the beginning. So it gets uh, a little confusing. You have one of two main ways the verse is translated, either the prayer of an experientially righteous believer. See, the third thing you have to determine is what does righteous mean, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. What are your options? You've got to think a little bit this morning. Every believer becomes positionally righteous when they trust Christ as Savior because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you and you are justified on the basis of that imputed righteousness. So we say you are positionally righteous. You are in Christ. That is our position in Christ. It's not our righteousness, but his righteousness. So if this is positional righteousness, and that would just mean that any believer, any believer who prays, would his prayer would accomplish much. But that doesn't make sense because what about a rebellious, immature Believer living in carnality, that would mean that his prayer would be just as effective as the prayer of a mature believer. So that wouldn't make sense. So it can't be positional. It's got to be experiential, that this is a believer that has confessed sin. That's the context just prior to this. He's confessed sin. He's in fellowship, and he is a growing, uh, maturing believer. So uh, we could understand this to mean either A, the prayer of an experientially righteous believer is able to be greatly effective or great or, or to accomplish much, or we could understand it to mean the productive prayer, that's where it becomes an ad- adjectival, the productive prayer of an experientially righteous believer is powerful or strong. Now, the thing is, the bottom line meaning of either translation is are, are the, either one very close. And the idea, especially when you look at the context, is that it is prayer from mature believers who are in fellowship applying the principles of prayer that accomplishes the solution. That's the bottom line. That it is, their, it is the prayer of the believer 
who is following the biblical principles of prayer. He's in fellowship. He's growing. He's maturing. He's walking in the light. Remember, uh, the Psalm 66:18 says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So that the believer who is out of fellowship, who's living in carnality, living according to the flesh, uh, doesn't get anywhere in his prayer life. So this is talking about the growing believer who has confessed sin, is in fellowship, that his prayer is powerful. That's the thrust of these piling on these um, words the way they are emphasizes the power of prayer. And then an illustration is given. And that illustration is the illustration of Elijah. And so we go back. I'm going to go back to the passage itself. Here we go. Uh, nope. I'll go back one more slide. There we go. The effective prayer or the prayer of the experientially righteous believer accomplishes much. And then the illustration in James 5.17, Elijah. Now, what he's saying is Elijah's not some super spiritual Old Testament saint. He says Elijah's a man with a nature just like us. He's no different in terms of his humanity. He has a sin nature. He failed. When we get to the next chapter, we're going to see him fail miserably. He's just a human being like we are, saved by grace, forgiven. It's not his power. It's God's power. But he's willing to trust God and to pray and and take God at his word. So Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. That's what occurred in 1 Kings 17.1, although 1 Kings 17.1 doesn't mention prayer. But based on James 5.17, we know that he prayed and it stopped raining. So he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Now we're at the end of that period. We've had the challenge on Mount Carmel. God has vaporized the altar, demonstrated his reality, and now he's going to fulfill his promise. James 5.18, he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So the illustration is from Elijah. James is saying to every believer like you and like me that our prayers can be just as powerful. That's what he's saying. Our prayers can be just as powerful if we are following the biblical principles uh, for prayer. And when we do, then God answers them in remarkable ways. Now, one of the reasons that, Je- that Elijah's prayer is so faithful is because he understands what God's promises are. He knew God's word. He had a promise. Uh, in 1 Kings 17, 1, he's not praying that we know of on a specific command from God or a specific promise. But as we studied then, he's going back to Deuteronomy where God had told Israel that if you are disobedient, then I will bring various judgments upon you, one of which was drought. So he's applying that promise in a general sort of way from 1 Kings 17. But if you look at if you look at 1 Kings 18.1, turn back with me to uh, 1 Kings. If you look at 1 Kings 18.1, when Elijah is still in Zarephath, we're told it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and what? I will send rain on I think it should be translated land. It's not talking about the whole earth. It's just talking about the land of Israel. So there's a promise there. So when Elijah prays in chapter 18, verse, 40, uh, verse 43, 44, he's on his knees, face between his knees. He is praying on the basis of a promise. He understands that God has made a specific promise, and so he's claiming that promise. That is one of the ways to make sure you get your prayers answered, is you're claiming a promise. You are praying through a promise that God has specifically uh, given us. And so it is important to know the promises of God. Now, when we go through this section on Elijah, there are four times that we know of that he prayed. The first was the prayer to bring the drought. 
in 1 Kings 17.1 compared with James 5.17. The second prayer is the prayer when he calls upon God to bring life back into the corpse of the widow's son in the last part of 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, verse 21. The third is the prayer for the sacrifice, that God would consume the sacrifice. That's 1 Kings 18, 36, and 37. And fourth, the prayer for the rain, 1 Kings 18, 42. Now, those first three are based on general promises, general principles of God. We can access those same promises, principles the same way. The last one we know is based on a specific and direct promise from God, and we have those available to us as well. In fact, it's important for us to understand passages such as uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 4, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, rather, verses 3 and 4, one of my favorite passages, seeing that His divine power, that is God's omnipotence, Nothing is more powerful than God. He can provide and has provided everything for us, and there's no problem, there's no challenge, there's no difficulty that you and I ever face in life that is greater than God's power and that God didn't know about in his omniscience from eternity past. So Peter writes, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, there's that grace word, he's freely given it to us, Everything pertaining to two categories, life and godliness. The word for godliness really refers to your spiritual life. So he's talking about physical provision and spiritual provision. He's given us everything we need physically to accomplish the plan he has for us. Unfortunately, most of us think his plan should include something up on Fifth Avenue in New York, and he's got us down in the ghetto somewhere, but... uh, He's going to give you everything you need in order to accomplish his will and his plan for your life. And if you don't have it, then God says it's not necessary for you to accomplish what I have for you to accomplish. He gives us everything we need related to physical life and spiritual life through the means is the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And where do we get that? We get that from his word. If you don't learn the word, you don't learn what God's given you. You don't learn all the things that God has provided for you. So he ha- it is through the knowledge of him that we have these things. And then in verse 4, uh, Peter says, For by these, that is his glory, his excellence, his character, by these he has given to us or granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them, that is by means of the promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean you're going to be a little God. What that means is that you are going to be able to have an effective relationship with God and benefit from that relationship with him because you understand who he is and what he's given you in terms of his word and his promises. So it is by them that we become the partakers of the divine nature. The image of Christ is produced in us having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So the key is understanding those promises. Now, there's four types of promises that we have in the Bible. There are personal promises. There are promises God made to Abraham. You can't apply those promises because he didn't give them to you. He gave them to Abraham or he gave them to Moses or he gave them to Joshua or he gave them to the disciples, but he didn't give them to you. He didn't give them to me. They are personal promises that are related to a specific space-time provision. For example, God told Elijah to go find Ahab, and he would send rain on the land. He didn't make that promise to you. You can't go out there right now, though we're having an extreme drought in Texas, and pray on the basis of that promise that God will bring rain. It's not going to work because that's not related to you. It is a historically conditioned promise. So it's for one person, Elijah. Then second, there are national promises to Israel, promises that God gave them the land. You can't extrapolate that land and say that applies to the United States of America or to Great Britain or to Germany or any other nation. They apply only to Israel as a nation, not to Christians in the church age, not to anybody else. And so we always have to ask that question, who's making the promise 
And to whom are they speaking? Is this promise a universal principle or is it historically conditioned? So the third category are these un, are these universal promises, promises that are true uh, across space and time. And even though a promise may be oriented to Israel in a situation, it still manifests a universal principle. For example, Isaiah uh, uh, 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. That is given specifically to Israel in a, in a certain circumstance, but it is just a manifestation of a universal principle that's true for every uh, for every believer in every dispensation, so that we uh, ha- and we have other promises that mirror that in other places. And then there are conditional promises. There are conditional promises, such as First John one nine. If we confess our sins, see, there's the condition. If we don't confess our sins, then there's no forgiveness and cleansing. If we do, the promise is that there will be uh, forgiveness. And cleansing, that God will forgive us of the sins that we confess, and he will then cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the sins we forgot, the sins that we didn't know were sins, uh, the sins that we don't want to admit yet are sins or that we did. Uh, all of those are completely cleansed. So that's a conditional promise. And I've got just a few illustrations for you that we can uh, uh, look at to point this out. Joshua 1, 7. God is God says to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Is that an individual promise, a national promise, a universal promise or a conditional promise? Test time. Pop quiz. Who's been listening? That's an individual promise. That's not a promise you can take and apply it to. Uh, to your life. Now, there's an underlying principle, and the underlying principle is that the believer who takes in the Word of God and it shapes their thinking, and they are obedient, then God is going to uh, God is going to bless them and and prosper them. That is, in terms of His plan for their life, that's the principle. But this promise is one that God gave to Joshua for the defeat of the Canaanites. In the land, so we have to be careful not to uh, not to use that. Uh, Joshua ten eight, the Lord said to Joshua, "Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you." Can you claim this promise, or could a Christian claim this promise going into D Day, or going into battle in Afghanistan? No. It is an individual promise given to Joshua at a specific point in time. A New Testament promise. Jesus gathered the disciples together and said uh, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. The old King James said to tarry. And if you've been around Christianity for very long, you'd hear these old-time pastors preach that you have to tarry. Tarry for the Spirit. Oh, great preaching, but bad doctrine. Um, that would mean that once we get saved, we all have to hightail it to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Oh, well, they don't take anything literally. So that's a one-time promise to the disciples that's historically conditioned. Same thing we find in Matthew 10, 7 and 8. As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Is that for today? No. Again, it's historically It's historically conditioned. Now, my favorite one is one that we always hear trotted out uh, in relation to the nation, and that's 2 Chronicles 7.14. Most of you have heard me teach on this before. Uh, This is in, this is God's response to Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple, where Solomon has gone through in that prayer of, of dedication, calling upon God to bless the nation, and that if they're disobedient, that God would remember his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God would restore them to the land after he disciplines them. And so God answers that specific prayer in Second Chronicles 7.14 and says, And my people who are called by my name 
uh, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. And you hear all kinds of people today trying to apply that to the United States of America. Except if you look at the phrase, my people, in First and Second Chronicles, it never refers to anybody other than Israel. Uh, there's a restoration of the land, which relates to the promise God gave to Israel of the land. And none of this has anything to do with anybody else and can't even apply to anybody else other than the nation, other than the nation Israel. So we have to be very careful how we look at various promises that God has given us. Now, there are great promises in the New Testament that we do have that we can claim, like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, through Christ who strengthens me. But even then, you have to look at the context. Right before that, Paul said, I've been able to abound, and I'm able to do without. I can do all things. In other words, I can either handle prosperity or I can handle adversity through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying you can go out and do things you couldn't do yesterday because now you're strengthened in Christ. Uh, if you, uh, just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're going to make a perfect score on the SAT. That is not what this is saying. It's saying that you can ha- you have to understand the context, and it's a fabulous promise. First uh, Thessalonians five nine: For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Another great promise for all of us. Same thing that we have a prayer promise in First John five fourteen and fifteen. This is the confidence which we have in Him, have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, that is the in fellowship, righteous, growing believer. We ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked for him. And so this is what Elijah is doing. He is praying on the promise of 1 Kings 18.1, and he is claiming that promise and that God will fulfill the promise that he has, that he has given him. So back to uh, 1 Kings 18. And he perseveres. He doesn't just pray once. Even though God made the promise, he doesn't just say, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bow down here, I'm going to kneel down, and I'm going to ask you to bring rain and, and stop. Notice what he does. 1 Kings 18.43, he said to his servant, go up now. Remember, they've gone up to the ridge on top of Mount Carmel. Go up now, look toward the sea, see the way the weather patterns run. The uh, storms blow in from the Mediterranean to the west of their position. And it says, go, to the, go look to see if, there is, uh, if there's anything coming. And so the servant runs to the top, looks, doesn't see anything, comes back down, says there's nothing. And so seven times. So Elijah's praying all this time. He doesn't just stop. He is persistent in his prayer. That's why James uses him as an example, because James' emphasis is on endurance and perseverance in times of difficulty. So he continues to pray. He prays seven more times. And then verse 44, we read, Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There's a cloud. It's just small, like a, like, like a man's fist. It's just barely out there over, over the water coming out of the sea. And so Elijah knows, okay, God is answering the prayer. It's right now. And he sent his servant to Ahab and said to Ahab, prepare your chariot. You know, quit eating now. Get your chariot ready and go down before the rain stops you. Now, what is going to happen here is that, um, let me find my... Get, get to my map here, is that they're up here on the Carmel Ridge. It runs from the northwest to the southeast. And at the base of that ridge, we have the Kishon River. Now, if you remember the pictures I had before, it looks pretty dry right now. Like, In fact, today it looks more like an intermittent stream, like some West Texas dry creek bed than, uh, than a river. But you look at older maps and it's always portrayed as a, as a river. And the implication you get here, all the water they got out of it, even at a time of drought, was that there was significant water there. A, it was spring-fed, so that even in times of drought, there would still be water there. And B, 
so much water is taken out of the Kishon in these other areas and springs in the uh, Jezreel Valley today that you, you look out there and you go, what do you mean water? I mean, back in Judges chapter 5, there was an allusion to a flash flood from the Kishon. You look at it today and you go, flash flood? Where? That's because all this water is being bled off today for irrigation and to uh, provide water for, for all the uh, uh, urban areas around, all the, all the villages and everything else. So it's just a, it's pretty dried up today. But back then it was a major, major source of water. And it was 15 miles from where they were at Mount Carmel down to where I had the red circle, uh, Jezreel. And this was a city where uh, Ahab had his summer uh, summer palace, and so if he is going to be riding his chariot that way, and these rains are going to come, then he better get a move on because there's a danger of a flash flood and getting mired down in the mud. And so this is what uh, Elijah is describing here, and he says you need to head back. And so Ahab rode off, went to Jezreel, and then verse 46, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. So he has a, a additional miraculous supernatural power to run the race physically. And he girded up his loins, which means he grabbed his robes and tied them up out of the way so he wouldn't trip over them. And he ran ahead of, of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, why is he running to Jezreel ahead of Ahab? Because he wants to be there when Ahab is going to have his confrontation with the real boss in the family, Jezebel. And that's what we'll look at next time because she's not going to be at all impressed by any of the stories that he tells about what happened on Mount Carmel. She is mired in her paganism, just like a lot of the people we talk to. And no matter what the evidence is, they just think we're absolutely nuts and crazy for believing it. But we know that the God of the Bible is real and true and that he answers prayer today just as he did in the time of Elijah. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the great principles we have in your word for prayer, the promises that you've given us that we can claim those and call upon you to fulfill those promises in our lives. Above all, the greatest promise that you've given us is that of salvation, that it's not dependent upon who we are, what we've done, but on Jesus Christ. Father, there may be someone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life. And Father, we pray that this morning would be the time that they would come to understand that their eternal life, their relationship with you is not dependent upon uh, on, on them, their failures, their sins, but it's dependent upon you and the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And the only condition for salvation is to believe, to trust that Jesus died for them, that he had them in mind so that they could have eternal life simply by accepting the free gift of salvation based on his work on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with these truths that we've studied this morning, that we might uh, not take prayer so casually, but remember that it is uh, the most powerful weapon that we have in our spiritual armament that we can talk directly to you and that we can communicate with you and that you hear our prayers. And may we not forget that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.